Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. There's money by you, intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence, no. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world-leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. Kicking off the new series of the Unwind podcast is best-selling author Will Storr. I absolutely loved this interview. Will is not only an amazing speaker, but his observations about society, human behavior are fascinating and eye-opening. He points out things about people that are so true, and yet it's bizarre we're not more consciously aware of them. Will's earlier books include Will Storr versus the Supernatural, The Heretics, Adventures with the Enemies of Science, where he investigated irrational beliefs. Selfie, how we all became so self-obsessed and what it's doing to us, which looked into the perils of social media. He wrote The Science of Storytelling and most recently The Status Game, which we are going to discuss in today's interview. The Status Game book is maybe one of the most influential books I've read, which is a large claim, I know, but this book looks at the human being's need for status and how status can determine so much of what we like, dislike, and our behavior from a day-to-day basis. I had never looked at human behavior through the lens of status. I was in disbelief how right Will was. We are all on a really deep level craving for status in different forms and the fight for it can control our entire reality if we let it. What's a quote you return to often and why? A quote I return to often is by Charles Bukowski and he once wrote, you should never expect a 100% day. If you get a 51, you've won. I love that. That always sort of go back to that. If you get a 51, you've won. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Why is that the quote you return to? I guess it speaks to perfection, doesn't it? Like we we always want this perfect day. And if the day hasn't been perfect, we can so easily spiral into kind of victimhood and, oh, it's not fair and the world is against me. But actually, if you think about it rationally, he's quite right. 51, you you know, you're 1% above the average. So yeah, like I think it's a very reassuring and kind of levelling sentiment it kind of pulls you down from that from the overly high expectations that we can so easily kind of tumble into i'm fascinated by expectations at the moment because i think in some ways we're in an expectation crisis Mm. because everywhere we look our expectations are being hiked up you know Mm. we need beautiful houses or amazing interiors and we also (laughs) need to have incredible romantic partners we need to have the best sex ever but we also need to be really successful what are your thoughts on this and what is happening? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think we're living in this almost like an age of perfectionism where the kind of minimum standard for what we consider acceptable keeps ratcheting up and ratcheting up and ratcheting up. So that's essentially the problem is, is that our kind of level for acceptable, our kind of 51, you know, keeps going up and up and up. And I think it's causing huge amounts of problems, especially for mental health. 
And this kind of leads me into the status game, your excellent book, which is so unique. And I think it surprised me that it is so unique. Because when you start to understand what status is, you suddenly think, why on earth are we not talking about this every single day? Mm-hmm. And my main question is, are we actually in a mental health crisis or are we in a crisis of status? Well, I think the two things are kind of indivisible in, in a way. One of the sort of findings that made me want to write the book was a study that found, uh, kind of reviewed all the literature in psychology on the psychology of status. And they found that the kind of need for status was fundamental. And that was the big thing for me, was that like, status isn't just a nice thing to have. It isn't just like a nice feeling to feel, oh, people value me. It's an essential. We have to have it. I think as soon as you understand that, you can understand a lot more of the kind of craziness in the world, but also the the problems that people have is that we're constantly subconsciously, because this craving is mostly subconscious. We see evidence for it everywhere, but in ourselves, it's mostly subconscious, but we're constantly looking for validation. We're constantly looking for kind of recognition. And when when we don't get it, it hurts us. It's bad for our mental health. It's also bad for our physical health. We can become physically unwell if we feel that our status is insufficient over a long period of time. How do you define status, I guess? If we go right back to basics, what does it mean to want status? It's simply the feeling of being valued by other people. There are two big needs, psychological needs for humans. is connection, so belongingness, love. We want to feel like we have a great partner romantically, good friends. We want to feel like we fit into some tribes. So belongingness and, and connection, people are kind of aware of this stuff. They're aware that when you don't have that, when you get lonely, that's very bad for you. But the other part of it, the second thing, which is just as important, is status. Once we're in our groups, once we're in our partnerships and our friendships and our romantic relationships, we, we need to feel of value to those other people. So that's all that status is. I think when we talk about status, people make the mistake that we're saying, oh, Everybody wants to be rich. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be have loads of followers on Instagram. And of course, some people do measure their status in those ways. Lots of people do, but you don't have to measure your status that way. And, and so, so it, it really fundamentally is that feeling of being valued. So, so, so one way I think about it is that you know we all want to feel connected into groups, but nobody wants to feel at the bottom rung of a group. That's not part of human nature. We always want to feel like we're you know somewhere above the middle, hopefully. You write about this amazing story of a prisoner. You know, he's been sentenced to jail and he actually doesn't want to leave jail. I'd love for you to share that because it really captured my understanding of status. Yes, this is an amazing uncle Ben Gunn that I interviewed for The Observer about maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I interviewed him at the time because he was the, I think he was the longest serving life prisoner. He'd just been released. So I was interested to find out what does it like? He'd been in prison since he was, I think, 14 years old. And he was in his, I think, late 40s. And I was just interested to find out what, what life was like for somebody that had basically been sort of shut away for all of his life. So I drove, I drove up to the Cotswolds, this beautiful cottage, um, to interview him. And it was an astonishing story. So Ben had a very difficult childhood. Uh, he was in care. And when he was, you know, a young teenager, he just in a moment of madness, picked up a table leg and beat someone to death. So, and then he sort of kind of ran to the phone box, phone 999 and said, I've just killed somebody. And he was sent down to prison, still in his school uniform. So his life was was over. And, and of course he went through a period of absolute despair. He tried to escape. Uh, he tried to kill himself by starving himself. You know, and when, the, when these things didn't work, he kind of resetted himself and, and just sort of figured out, well, I've got to survive here. And so he started educating himself, he started reading, uh, um, studying for qualifications. And, um, you know, whilst this was going on, he was very rebellious with the kind of prison authorities. It would drive him crazy that they, they, their little acts of kind of bullying and intimidation and sort of petty punishment. Um, and so he started studying the law and started studying the rules and actually what, what, what are they allowed to do and what aren't they allowed to do? And he became this kind of prison lawyer. So he became this authority in the prison that everybody would come to and had a problem. So in other words, he kind of had a, a lot of status in the prison system eventually. So the way he said it to me was that as a lifer, you have a certain amount of status. If you're a life prisoner in, in the prison system, you know, you're up there already. But th- because he was his prison lawyer too, he was also up there. So he was kind of like, you know, a big deal in, in, in the prison system. And, and then what happened is that he, he fell in love so this um, woman called Alex came along teaching English and they fell in love and had this secret kind of affair, having sex in stationary cupboards and things. And because um, Ben was doing all this prison lawyer stuff, 
they kept passing him over for parole because they said, you're, you're a troublemaker. And, and so Alex said, look, all you've got to do is just be good for six months then. Just behave and you can come out and you can live with me. And I've got this wonderful cottage and cats and you can this perfect life. Uh, but he wouldn't do it. Like he wouldn't do it. And he eventually had to admit to her, like, I don't want to leave the prison. And so to me, that was extraordinary. Like, how could it be that you're in this place that's designed to be as awful as possible, but you don't want to leave? And the, you know, the conclusion really was that, that he'd built a, a life for himself in there, by which I mean he built status for himself in there. He became an important person. And that was his identity. That was everything to him. Uh, and so very sort of cleverly, Alex sort of encouraged him to write this blog called Prisoner Ben uh, about life inside. And, and this was in the early days of blogging. And Prisoner Ben won an Orwell Prize, very prestigious prize. So she managed to get some status outside the, the prison system. And, the, the, and that was enough to get him to behave. And he was released. But when I met him, he was really, really suffering. I mean, he was on the edge of a, a, of a nervous breakdown, really. He, was, he, he said that, you know, I, I knew who I was in there and out here. I, I have no idea who I am. So that, in a nutshell, is, is Ben's story. But, but to me, it's fascinating because it shows you that really what motivates us, what gives us meaning in life, uh, is not wealth and even freedom. It's that status. It's that identity that comes from being good at something, being valued by the people around us. What are the main ways people try to become valued, try to get status? Uh, well, there are three principal ways that humans compete for status. The first way is dominance. So we've been using dominance to compete for status for literally millions of years, for, since before we were human. And you can think about dominance as the kind of animalistic way of doing status games. It's about aggression, physical violence, but also in human social violence. So ostracization, bullying, cancel culture, it's all forms of dominance. And so when, when, when you see people kind of forcing other people to attend to you in status, that's dominance. But the other two ways are, are you know, what are the two ways that humans prove their value to other humans? The first way is by being virtuous. Mm. So when we were evolving in the days of the hunter-gatherer tribe, um, you could be courageous, uh, you could be generous, you could be helpful to other people when they're in need. Uh, but also virtue is about beliefs. Mm. So every group has its own kind of sacred beliefs. And, and so you're virtuous if you know the sacred beliefs and you embody the sacred beliefs and you enforce the sacred beliefs. So virtue definitely has its dark side. Um, and you can think of the Pope, for example, as being a, a, a virtue superstar. You know, he's not um, world famous and admired for his competence. He's not particularly good at anything, but he, but he stands for the virtue mm. of the Catholic Church. Um, the Dalai Lama might be another example. So, so that's virtue. The other way that, that, that humans, evolutionarily speaking, have proved their value to other humans, of course, is competence. They're being good at stuff. So back in the days of the tribe, good hunter, good honey finder, good storyteller. Today, Gordon Ramsay, Serena Williams, Beyonce, these are all people who have very high status on the basis of their extreme competence. Something that you write is that actually status games are becoming harder to play. Mm. And I thought this was really interesting because this kind of links with the massive decline in mental health we've seen since 2010-ish. Why is that? Well, I'd sort of take it back to first principles. Mm. Why are we unhappy? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Because the vast majority of us right. living in the UK um, have a roof over our heads. Even the people who are, you know, we have, they have food, they have warmth. There's a social security system here that, that tries to look after the people even at the very bottom of the, of the hierarchy. And I'm not for a moment suggesting life is easy for people, but compared to people living even a hundred years ago, they're living in splendor and luxury. And even people at the top of the hierarchy are often very, very unhappy. You know, we, we know wealth doesn't bring happiness. I mean, this is just something that we know. Um, Elon Musk doesn't strike me as a particularly happy person. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, so it doesn't make any sense. Why is that? And, and I think a lot of that is to do with status because, um, you know, we need status to be happy. You've got to think about how our brains have evolved and what our brains have evolved to expect. So we've only been living in towns and cities and villages for about 500 generations. We were living in tribes for 100,000 generations. Wow. So for a massive amount of times, so and we've still got that neural equipment. Our brains, we're still born expecting a tribal context. And the tribal context is a very small number of people, you know, 30 to 50 people. So the brain is wired to play status games with a very small number of people. So it's actually not that hard to be of value to 30 to 50 people. It's very small status games. Uh, but now if you think about it, who do we, we, we play status games with 
well, on, the, on Instagram, millions of people. And so it's not just that the groups are much bigger, but it's also the distance between top and the bottom is absolutely huge now. It never used to be like that. And what, what, one of the most surprising things that I found in my research was that in the days of the tribe, there weren't really such things as leaders. Mm. They weren't big dominant leaders of these hunter-gatherer tribes. It was much more egalitarian. Um, somebody might make the call on where to go hunting that day, for example. But that person will be there because they're really good at hunting. Yeah. And it, they'll be there by the consensus of the rest of the tribe. So, you know, the status games we've to play are very shallow. They're not that hard. Uh, whereas these days, of course, it's because they're so huge and the distance between top and the bottom is so vast. I think we constantly have this status anxiety that, that's just built into the human condition these days. I couldn't agree more. And this is why I found that your book really provides a huge answer, I think, as to why mental health is so bad. And, but a reason that isn't discussed. For some reason, status feels this uncomfortable discussion for people to have. Yeah. And yet you've just proven <laughs> it is essential to our humanity. We have to feel a value. We want to feel of more value mm. than someone else. And that kind of then leads, I guess, to jealousy, envy. And again, mm. like mm. ugly words. We're not, mm. especially women. <laughs> I'm never, never jealous. Like, me envious never. No. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think we're so hesitant to address this? Well, it's a really interesting question. Um, so when anthropologists look at hunter-gatherer tribes, the ones that still exist today, um, what they find is universally, it's kind of taboo to be pushy about your sense of status. So humans are such status-obsessed animals that we're very, very attuned to people claiming status that's not their, that's not their worth. And in the hunter-gatherer kind of context, in the forager tribe context, when people do that, they get punished because if you're putting yourself up there, that means other people feel down there, you know. So it's this kind of universal part of the human condition that we don't like people claiming status isn't fair. So we have this kind of taboo built into us. And I think that that carries over to, you know, as, as I said, we've still got the same hunter-gatherer brain. So there is this weird reluctance we have to admit even to ourselves that we're interested in status but i feel very strongly that that's that's wrong-headed mm. and we're never going to solve these problems un unless we admit them mm. and and the way i've started to see the idea of status is actually it's an incredible part of our programming because mm. what status is is somebody saying i want to be of value to the human family i want people to think i'm a good person I want people to think I'm useful to other people. And that's a wonderful thing. That's the best of human nature. Mm. That's, that's the best thing about people. Mm. But it's status. So it shouldn't be a dirty word. Uh, and in fact, when people say, oh, you know, sometimes when I'm talking about the book, people say, well, how do I get out of the status game? And it's like, why would you want to get out of the status game? Because it's like the definition of a loser. If you don't care about what other people think about you, if you don't care if people think you're useless and mm. um, without virtue, that's not a good place to be. That's not a, a life of meaning and thriving, I don't think. I think you brilliantly create a path to a healthier status game, as you just said, because to your point, status isn't terrible. It's actually a really wonderful thing about being human. I think it's what you really offer for people is the awareness to choose the status games that they're playing. And I just kept writing down all these beautiful nuggets that you wrote around kind of how all of this is in our head. Everything we're talking about is such a extension of our imaginary world. Obviously, no human is better or worse than the other human, but our brain will just create a story around that. That's right. So it's kind of strange because the conscious experience of life is not a game, it's a story. Mm. So we live these kind of heroic stories. If we've got a mentally healthy brain, we're living a vaguely heroic story in which we, <laughs> in, in which we feel like we're flawed heroes. We're, you know, we're not perfect. We make mistakes, but ultimately, you know, we're, we're good people uh, wanting to achieve good things. That's the conscious experience of life. But the subconscious root kind of reality is, is often this, is much more like a game. It's keeping score. And th th there are two kind of bits of, almost like biological equipment in our, in our subconscious. There's one neuroscientist called um, a sociometer. And the sociometer measures, uh, keeps track of our, our levels of connection. You know, it's very sensitive. So you, you can walk into a room and just detect somehow that someone doesn't like you very much. Mm. And, and it's a horrible feeling. Mm. That's the sociometer. And equally, you can walk into a room and feel like really embraced. And it can feel wonderful. So that's the connection thing. But there's also, it's sometimes called it's a status detection system. Sometimes they call it a hierometer. There's also something that's measuring your kind of level of status. So that's also constantly going on in the, in, in your subconscious mind. And, and so 
simple stuff like you, you can go into a lift in a in a hotel and you'll be clocking who's got the nice luggage who's got the bad luggage who's going to the luxury suites on the top floor who's you know like all that stuff is going on if somebody's standing too close to you you get like what well, it's disrespectful there's all this kind of stuff constantly going on in the kind of subconscious brain and you see in 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 stories that you watch in movies or reading novels very often archetypal storytelling is like life mm. it's about heroes and villains but it's also under, under the hood it's about status it's the orphan Harry Potter, you know, becoming this glorious mm. hero at the end of it. So, mm. you know, the stories that we consume for entertainment is very similar, very like life, the life that we live. In the 70s, the status game almost changed quite dramatically. What has happened in the last 40 years, you know, culturally, politically, for our understanding of status to have been kind of shifted so much? Yeah, there was a huge shift in the in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. You know, we were all born into this kind of world that has these rules about how to live. And I think when we're born, our sort of very human brains are asking this basic fundamental question. And that is, who do I have to be in this place mm. in order to achieve connection and status, to get along and get ahead? Mm. And then you sort of turn yourself into that person. And so one of the, one of the big things that affects the answer to that question is the economy. Mm. How do I achieve a job that's going to see me earning connection and status that, that's going to reflect that I'm offering value to other people. And so the economy went through this massive change in the late 70s and early 80s with Margaret Thatcher um, and Ronald Reagan when they took over the helm. I mean, in the middle of the 20th century, the economies of the West were much more collective. You know, we had very high taxation. We had, you know, unionization, massive welfare state, all of that kind of thing. And it worked well for decades. And there was much less inequality in the middle of the 20th century than there is now. But it all started going wrong in the 70s. So the politicians had to come up with a new way of running the West, essentially. So what they came up with was this idea that's called neoliberalism. And what neoliberalism basically is, 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 okay, we're going to get rid of all these policies that are about everyone looking after each other. And we're going to turn it into the, the West into this kind of much more competitive space. So everybody has to kind of almost kind of fighting each other to get what they want. And so that, that's what they did. That's what Thatcher and Reagan did. And, you know, Margaret Thatcher even said, um, I found some interviews from the early 80s when she first came into power. She actually said, um, you know, things that's bothered me about the politics of the last 10 years is all about the collectivization. And she said this very sinister thing. She said, the project is economics, but the object is to change the soul. And that's a really sinister thing because that's exactly what happened. They did change the soul. We became much more competitive very, very quickly. So Jean Twenge, who I know has been a guest on your, your podcast quite recently, she did this massive study where she looked at the changes in which parents were naming their children in the early 80s. So before the early 80s, it was things like Barbara and John and Jeff, like ordinary yeah. names. But then in the early 80s came this thing of people naming their children unusually spelled and sort of crazy names <laughs> and because they wanted their children to stand out suddenly because you're in this much more competitive space. This is the beginning of the era of keep fit, of everybody trying to have, you know, have, have these amazing perfect bodies. And so what happened, if you can think about who we were in the 60s and 70s, we were collective, if we were hippies, we were anti-materialistic, anti-the man, nobody, you know, we weren't worrying about our jobs and things. That wasn't a big sort of value for us. But then by the mid 80s, it was Madonna, it was greed is good, it was Wall Street, it was yuppies, it was about wealth, cocaine, beauty. So that's the neoliberal era. They, they changed the economy to make it more competitive. We became more competitive. Mm. And we're still in that neoliberal era today. Mm. We, you know, we, we still live in a neoliberal world. It's just been even more accelerated, by my estimation, by um, social media. So I think social media has encouraged that super competitive space that we're in right now. I hate feeling competitive. <laughs> yeah. It's such a horrible feeling. Yeah. I think how I've dealt with it, I guess, from an anecdotal standpoint, is I've just tried to create a world that is so different that I don't compete with anyone because it's such a horrible feeling. But what's your reflections on how people kind of remove themselves, I don't know, from being competitive? Or do you actually think it's helpful having competition in one's life? Well, uh, I, I, Does it I have made, any benefits? Well, I made the decision between com competition and rivalry. Mm -hmm. So competition is actually really bad oh. because you know if you go into a, a workspace for example where there's an environment where everybody's competing with each other 
we often think of American companies being a bit like this, where everybody's sort of backbiting, tearing each other down, taking credit, ta- you know, pushing blame, horrible environment. And, and, that, and that's a kind of status game that's been designed where status is in short supply, is a zero sum game. Everyone's fighting over, the, you know, the scraps they can get. And, it, you know, it's horrible. It, it leads to burnout. It leads to mm. mental health problems. It leads to corruption as well. Mm. It, it leads to people sort of bending the rules in order to get ahead. Rivalry is much more productive. So what you find is that if you've got like a company or two individuals that are have this kind of history of near wins, they get really competitive with each other. With you know, so it's not like all against all; it's one against one. Although that can be exhausting and horrible, <laughs> it's actually reproductive. So you can think about Steve Jobs's rivalry with Microsoft in Status Game. As you know, I talk about the real, the true origin story of the yeah. iPhone. And the origin story of the iPhone is that Steve Jobs went to a barbecue with somebody from Microsoft who was rubbing his face in it about how they'd solved the future of computing with these touch pads. We had a stylus. And um, he went to work in the Monday morning and was just like, you know, he was furious. Like, this idiot, um, uh, you know, stylus is stupid. It should be with the fingers. Let's get on it. You know, let's, <laughs> let, let's make this thing. And, and that became kind of an iPad, which became the iPhone and then re-emerged as the iPad. So without rivalry, we wouldn't have Apple, we wouldn't have, you know, the iPhone. So that's productive. Um, but, but I think you can construct status games that don't have that horrible competitive mm. vibe. And, and in the book, I write about CrossFit, you know, the, the, the kind of American mm. health regimen, which people just become addicted to mm. because it's designed that it's not, rivalrous in that way or it's, it's not a competition so everybody goes into crossfit and have a workout of the day so everyone's doing the same workout but it's tuned to your particular level of strength so you're not competing with that person and that person you're competing with yourself last week and on top of that there's a culture in crossfit where everybody is super supportive and clapping and cheering and kind of you know moving you on so it's the opposite of that horrible corporate space in like the new york you know, Devil Wears Prada kind of vibe. It's everybody cheering each other on. Um, status is in free and copious supply. And it really works. I mean, CrossFit famously becomes completely addictive to people, to a fault. People sometimes push themselves so hard at CrossFit, they damage themselves. So that's a really successfully constructed status game. Do you think that competition has got so rife and so toxic that actually we're consciously or unconsciously choosing loneliness because it's actually an easier, painful emotion over competition? Definitely, yeah. I mean, in Japan, of course, there's a great example of this, um, the hikikomori. This is a whole generations of of people that have shut themselves away Mm. and have effectively no contact with the outside world. Uh, And when researchers interview these people they'd say things like oh you know i can't cope with you know the pressure of outside i can't cope with the social comparison i can't cope with following the rules of groups it's all status game stuff you know japan is famously a very very competitive perfectionistic society and so i I think of course if it's happening over there you're going to see elements of that everywhere where people find that the constant battle to feel a value in the world just becomes too much. And, and one of the definitions of depression is this, is, is, I like this idea where they talk about retreating to the back of the cave, they call mm-hmm. it, where you've been out in the world and the, and the fight for status has broken you a bit. So you retreat to the back of the cave. And one researcher that I read talks about this idea of self-subordination. You know, when we're depressed, we can be really mean to ourselves and bully ourselves and say, you're useless, you're pathetic, you're rubbish. And, it, and, and the theory is that that's a that's a way of almost like protecting yourself from that fight for status. It's like pushing you back into the, the safety of the cave and just saying to yourself, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One piece of advice that you give employers is to really use our need for status in creating more harmonious work environments. I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a few sort of kind of basic rules for employers. I think I think one of the basic ones is praise in public, criticism in private. I, I think we've all had bosses that have criticised in public, mm. and that's such a dramatic removal of status. It's mm. it's so humiliating that. I just think you should never humiliate anybody. There should just be a golden rule of being a boss of anybody. So that's a kind of fundamental one. It's important to have those kind of status rewards clear and out in the open and, and, and the perception of fairness that people are being rewarded fairly. I think one thing that's toxic in companies is the perception that their favourites are being played, that the people who are mates with the boss get the rewards. I mean, it's so natural, it's so common. And the people that are mates with the boss get punished. I think that's a... That, that's a toxic situation for an organization to find itself in. And also just the basic idea of, sort of being, being generous with your the status that you're giving out. I think that if there's one sort of thing that's sort of changed my life looking at this research is this understanding that people value status more than money. Like they, they genuinely do. It's the most important thing. It's your identity. And we have status to give. Status comes from other people. We don't give it to ourselves. And, and so we, ha- we, we all have this immeasurably valuable reward to give other people but we don't give it very much (laughs) like we can all give it more often with the important caveat that it's authentic we don't want to be living in this horrible los angeles kind of world where oh you're amazing oh my god you're gorgeous and (laughs) you can't believe a word of it because then there's no status because everybody's giving it out too freely but but you can always find something to give some authentic status to somebody else about and it will make their day it really will so I, i think we should just be much more free and generous with the status that we give other people. To touch upon that kind of LA point, and we were discussing this slightly before the interview, mm. but this really links into the self-esteem movement and also helicopter parenting and the way that we've brought up some of these young generations that are now, I guess, Gen Z, I, I guess, when it all started. And we're obviously seeing the massive fallout of this type of parenting of just constant praise Mm. thinking that if we just give more praise Mm. then we're going to help someone build status Mm. but it doesn't quite work out that way does it no so back in the 90s the 80s and the 90s there was this big self-esteem movement there was there was was a group of of very influential psychologists in in the west of the usa that kind of got halfway to the truth they kind of realized that people with high self-esteem so people who felt they were high status were more successful than people with low self-esteem. So they came to this conclusion, oh, well, we should just make everybody feel great about themselves <laughs> and then everybody will be great. And, and, and they really believe this. They, they, they called self-esteem a social vaccine. So this idea that if we tell everybody they're amazing, they're going to become amazing and we're going to solve homelessness, drug addiction. The big moral panic at the time was teenage pregnancy. It was up in arms <laughs> about. We're going to solve teenage pregnancy. We're going to solve the gang problem in LA. They really believed all this stuff. Um, and of course, it didn't work. What they created was a whole load of narcissism. You know, if you take children and tell them they're amazing and they're wonderful and everything they do even when they fail is fantastic a chunk of those kids who are vulnerable to narcissism are going to become much more narcissistic it's not a good idea to do that and the reason i said they were halfway there is because they were right to think that people who had high self-esteem in other words who felt they were high status were more successful but only because they'd earned that status so the kids who were doing really well, well at school felt good about themselves because they worked really hard and they, and they got the grades and the teachers praise. So that's where their high self-esteem came from. It didn't come from just praise. It came from being of value, of proving that I'm a valuable person, that I am learning, I'm 
achieving i'm well if you're a child i'm becoming i'm going you know i'm on the pathway to become a valuable adult so so that was the mistake they made but it was a huge error and, and i grew up in that era in the 90s i grew up i was at school um with teachers who blamed every problem that i had in my you know personal life on my low self-esteem and i completely believed all this stuff you know and i think lots of people still do actually they, they feel that the right thing to do is to tell everybody they're amazing no matter what and it's actually quite a bad idea well, it's making us so fragile mm. and we could just see how brittle we all are, I guess, you know, looking at anxiety and, and stress and just kind of how hypervigilant we all are just on the tiniest threat. It's interesting because, you know, for the last 10 years, I've been deep into this kind of self-help world and it's only now am I beginning to realise that a lot of the self-help jargon isn't that helpful. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, I think I've got some sort of fundamental issues with lots of the self-help yeah. literature that's out there. And I think the problem that you see again and again and again and again is this denial of genetics. Mm. So a big part of who we are is genetic. Mm. And you can't get away from it. Mm. it. It's not a story that anybody wants to hear mm. <laughs> because it doesn't make us feel particularly good. But so our genes don't, they're not like a prison in the sense that they we're on this like immovable path because of our genes that we're going to become this person you know there's bandwidth to move about depending on how we live our lives um, and depending on lots of sort of chance things that are going to happen to us but they do set limits on us so th there's a limit to how intelligent anyone can become there's a limit to how good i can be at dancing you know <laughs> and it's quite quite a low limit you know and, and that's because of genetics self-help has this and it's a very western individualistic message which is basically you can be anybody that you want to be you can do anything that you want to do you just got to put your mind to it you've just got to dream big and it's a lie it's not true and it's actually a really toxic lie because, you know, what it's saying is that, that you are absolutely in charge of your success in life. Um, and then what, what happens in life? What happens in life is that we fail. Yeah. Like most of the time we're failing. And so if our success is only down to us, then it also means that our failure is only down to us. So what happens is we begin to feel like failures. And especially, you know, middle age is such a, a peak time um, for, for people who are committing suicide. And, it, and it's no surprise because middle age is when you, you start running up against your limitations when you start, hang on, I'm never going to be JK Rowling. I'm never going to be, you know, th these people that I, I really thought I was going to be because I was told I could do anything. And I think part of why it's so difficult, especially for people in the West, is that we have this message drilled into us that we can do anything. And it's just not true. And it's a really unfair message to give to people, especially young people. And it links back to the expectation. We are just pumped mm. with expectations for ourselves. And I've definitely felt that recently, getting, having hit 30s, yeah. when suddenly I have not reached any single milestone by <laughs> <laughs> myself, myself. I had to really sit there in the kind of failure of my expectations. But I'm, to be honest, grateful that I've had to sit there in the failure of expectations now, rather than in 10 years time, 20 years time. Yet at some point, I think every human being has quite a hard time facing up to reality, something that we don't want to do, nor does public messaging yeah. help us um, do it. That's right. That's right. And I think middle age is especially difficult because in this kind of Western individualistic world, we kind of worship the young and we mm. worship the beautiful very much. And so, you know, middle age is a time when it goes away, your body yeah. changes, you know, your teeth go weird, your hair falls out. It's not very nice. It's horrible, right. you know. Yeah, uh, like uh, comes. Yeah, yeah and exactly. And, and, you know, pretty privilege is a real thing. Yeah. You, know, you know, we talked about dominance, virtue and success as being the status case. But of course, beauty is a status game. Mm -hmm. I don't write about it much in the book because it's kind of boring. It's, yeah. It is what it is. There's not much yeah. to say about it, apart from it's real. You know, yeah. people who are beautiful kind of have an easier path in life but even they get old even they hit middle age and that stops um so yeah i mean you know age is difficult you know for those reasons we, we hit the peak of what what a beauty we have you know maybe i don't know i wouldn't yeah. like to say an age but we <laughs> but do. do it yeah. happens we also hit the, the ceiling of our potential competence often not always but but often in middle age um so yeah it's in this kind of world that we live in this age of perfectionism this age of ever-increasing levels of sort of status that's demanded from us it, you know middle age can be really really difficult for people and that's why i quite like the fact that your book helps us understand that maybe just simply we're just shifting status games we're shifting to a new game and yeah. it's kind of it 
actually. And that feels more digestible. Yeah, I, I think that's the answer is that you've got to realise that you can't play those games anymore. Mm. Like you can't compete with a 21 year old for looks. <laughs> I don't even care right. if you're, you know, <laughs> right. like the most beautiful person in the world, you're Angelina Jolie or whatever. You just can't compare with the average 22 year old. It's yeah. just, that's just nature. Yeah. Um, so stop and find new games to play. And, and so what psychologists find is that the people who are um, members of more kind of groups tend to be emotionally more stable and generally happier than people who are members of fewer groups. And I think that's, of course, that's about belongingness, but it's also about status. When we're members of kind of multiple groups, we have multiple sources of status. And I think it's probably appropriate that in our 20s and 30s, we have fewer status gains because you're really trying to establish yourself in one. And that takes a lot of time and effort. But when we get to middle age, I think the smart thing to do is to hedge is to diversify, you know, find different games to play. And I think the, you know, the people who have children, they, they do that naturally because people start playing status games through their kids, sometimes unhealthily, mm. you know. Tiger mums. <laughs> exactly, tiger mums. But, you know, you can even see on social media, people swap their, on Facebook, people swap their pictures for their pictures of their kids. It's so mm. weird. It's like they're playing these games through their children now. But even beyond that, I mean, one thing I've done because of the book is, is I've started volunteering in my spare time. And that's been a huge source of um, satisfaction to me and something that I would never have dreamt of doing had I not done this research. It would never have occurred to me in a million years. But now I spend a lot of time yeah, volunteering. And that's something that I found that's been really fantastic for my mental health. It's, it's changed my self-image. And even though it's kind of exhausting and sometimes you don't want to go, whenever I'm driving home, I feel really good. You know, I feel really good about myself and my place in the world because I feel like I've been of value. What volunteering do you do? I'm a Samaritan. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. so I sit on the phones. Through the work with the Samaritans, have you understood humanity in a different way than you did before? Has it taught you anything? I think it's underlined the importance of status and connection. Wow. You know, when I'm speaking to people who are feeling suicidal, mm. there are a few predictable routes to it. One of them is bereavement. Um, you know, a lot of people um, I speak to are really in the teeth of a recent bereavement and it's very difficult, you know, for them. Uh, another one is chronic pain. You know, that's very difficult as well. If you feel like you're in, always in pain and there's no way of getting out of it, then that can lead to suicidal ideation. But a lot of it is down to identity. Mm. A lot of it is down to I'm lonely, I'm useless, and there's no way that I can feel like I'm not lonely and useless. You know, there's a lot of people I speak to that feels to me that's at the core of, of what's going on with them is, is their connection is broken and their status is broken. They don't feel loved. And they don't feel valued. And, and that, and if you're stuck in that for a long period of time, and crucially, if you feel trapped, if you feel like there's no way to build any of that stuff, that then I think it's very telling that what the mind wants to do is to end itself. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary reaction the brain has. It's, it's so painful. I don't want this anymore. Yeah. And I guess what's fascinating when you actually really think about it, as we are all and can be a support network mm. to someone, but if we understand how critical it is for people to feel valued, maybe we can all do a much better job at making the people in our communities feel more valued. Because on the whole, we're probably terrible at showing the appreciation we should be showing for those around us. Yeah, and that's one thing I do when I'm on my calls is that I, I, I try and find things in the conversation where I can say to that person, and, and it isn't difficult because the people that you speak to who are like that, they've been through hell. Yeah. Well, well, they're in hell. I mean, you, often you're speaking to people on the worst night of their lives. Mm. Um, and when people have been through hell, it's easy to find things that you can say to them, look, you're heroic. Most people don't go through the stuff that you're going through mm. and you're still here and you phoned us tonight and you're, you found the courage to try and get help. Mm. And that nine times out of 10 has, a, has an effect on them on the phone. You know, there's this, you know, no one's ever said that to me before and you can feel them lift. You've just made them feel valuable. You've made them feel like they've got something. And again, that's come from my work on status that the kind of the idea of talking to people in that way. So do you think we're getting to this climatic point? in society, whereby there's too many unhappy people in the current main game that we're in, that we're going to go through another social shift. If you think about, you've just, you know, you explained a little bit earlier about the kind of 80s boom of mm. neoliberalism. Do you see the sprouts of us going, this is too much, we've got to move in a different direction? Or do you think this is going to be here forever? Well, I think there has been a shift. And I think the shift happened after the global financial crisis, where 
what happened with neoliberalism was everyone started playing success games. Mm. It, like, it, before it was virtue games, it was much more collective, it was people much more political, it was protesting against, you know, this, that and the other. And then we went to this success games era, it was all about loads of money and getting rich and being a yuppie um, and bling then after that. And then I think what happened um, with the financial crisis and with the economies not going quite so well, we had this idea out there which is now disputed um but, but this idea that that millennials were the first generation not to earn more money mm. than their parents mm. I, mean, I think the latest work actually says that as they go into middle age they're doing pretty well yeah, so that's good yeah. news um but, but but certainly this perception that the game was broken and it wasn't fair and and, and this you know the okay boomer thing lots yeah. of negative kind of prejudicial talk about boomers online and i think that's status stuff and, and i think people stopped looking to success to play games and start looking to virtue. So you had the Occupy movement and all the way through to things like Black Lives Matters and, you know, the, the kind of more social justice kind of era that we've been in since maybe 2018. Um, so, so I think that's what's been happening over the last few years. And the main status games now seems to be around identity politics and being the most virtuous in yeah. your social views. That's right. So we've gone from success to much more of a virtue-inflected culture, especially amongst young people where certainly the perception is that success has become harder to find, the fight has become too fierce. So, yeah, I think you see that very clearly, especially, yeah, this is there around 2018, 2017, 2018, that started really happening. What do you think is the most toxic status gain? The most toxic form of status game is when you mix virtue with dominance. Mm. So when you mix virtue with dominance, as I said before, virtue is a, is a double-sided coin. Hitler thought he was virtuous. He thought he was mm. doing a good thing. Lenin, you know, like some of the biggest monsters in history were convinced Putin? of their... Putin? Can, well, I'm not sure about Putin. <laughs> I actually don't know what he actually thinks. Like, I, I, I don't even think he thinks he's doing something good. I mean, that's his argument that, that, that um, Ukraine is full of Nazis and that's what... But I don't even think he believes that. Right. Like, I, I think he's a pure dominance guy. Right. That's my sense. But but I think Hitler thought he was... A, I mean, he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a kind person. Um, they genuinely thought that by eradicating the Jews, they were rescuing the world. I mean, there's awful as that sounds um lenin stalin thought the same thing about ridding the world of the middle classes and the rich people so virtue can be you know very toxic and it, when it's blended with dominance so when you're forcing people to agree with your beliefs that's humanity at its worst definitely and we we, we see that in a kind of mild form on, on online on, on social media a lot is, is that if you don't agree with my political beliefs i'm going to punish you and you know go after you where do you think we're going to go with cancel culture do you think we need to understand it more in order for us to then almost see it as an eye roll witch hunt that we're not going to engage in? Or do you think that still cancel culture is going to stay around for a while? Well, And obviously, look, I say that kind of, I've said that quite flippantly. And obviously <laughs> there's huge examples where people really have been terrible people and finally justice has come to them. But there's also examples of quite fleeting cancel culture whereby... Yeah. Should that person really be told to mm. kind of like never speak again? Well, I think it is going away a little bit. I, th I think it's important to contextualise cancel culture mm. in, in the sense that it, it feels new because it's social media related. Because it's, But it's always been a part of the human condition. Mm. Um, in the days of the hunter-gatherer group, if you went against the group's sacred beliefs, you'd be ostracised. And it would begin with teasing, humiliation. It would build to social distancing, um, you know, being ignored. And if you carried on, you know, breaking those sacred rules, you would be kicked out of the tribe or even killed. So we, we've always done that stuff. The internet is giving us, social media is giving us a new way to do it. So of course, humans being humans, we're just going to do it. But, but I think peak cancel culture, I feel like it's over. I hope it's over mm. because it runs on gossip. It runs on suspicion. It runs on collective blame. Mm. Uh, it runs on your mates with this person. This person did something I didn't like. Mm. It's a really bad way of, of running a kind of a justice system. Like we, we've evolved a law and a court system to deal with this stuff. So this other way of dealing with it is actually a, a very ancient way of dealing with stuff. And it's not good. We, we should have evolved past that. So I think, I think it becoming a big cultural norm. I think that, that, that will fade away, but it's never going to go away completely because social media is going to always be there. And it's a sort of baked in part of the, the human condition. We don't like it when people say things that we think are reprehensible and, and there's always going to be this urge to kind of punish them because they make us feel 
like, like there's a way of seeing belief as a claim to status. If you, mm -hmm. I think the easiest way to think about it is in terms of religion. I'm not a Christian, but if I was a Christian, it's like, I'm a good Christian and I believe in the, the, the resurrection and that's a claim to status. Mm -hmm. You know, what's going on under the hood is mm -hmm. I'm better than you and you and you and you because you don't get the truth that I get. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I give my, you know, so, so that's what's going on. And so when somebody comes along and says, oh, that's bullshit, um, you know, Jesus was just a kind of a huckster and he never <laughs> resurrected. It's not just, oh, you disagree with me. It's an attack on my claim to status. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why people get so irrationally emotional about belief. And that's why people want to cancel other people because it's not just you disagree. If it was just you disagree with me, you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a different, interesting perspective you've got there. It's a bit different <laughs> from mine. Maybe I can learn from that. But it's never that. It's that if it's not a status-based belief. Like if somebody says, oh, well, I think, you know, we can disagree on the length of the Mississippi River. We can, we can disagree on lots of things and it's not going to end up in a massive fight. Right. But, but when it's a belief, like a sacred belief that we base our status on, that's when people get really emotional and that's when the cancel culture stuff kind of rears his ugly head up because it's an attack on our claim to status. Oh, I find it so fascinating. Towards the end of the book, you write about the seven rules mm. of the status game. I'm not going to ask you to go through all of them because everyone's going to have to read the book, but I'd love just to touch upon a couple. Yeah. A point that really resonated with me was for us to step away from those small acts of dominance mm. that's so easy to be vulnerable to. Can you talk to us about those kind of, yeah. I mean, there's so many different yeah. examples, but like, they always make you feel icky. Yeah, <laughs> they do always afterwards. regret them. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. And they, I guess they're like little ego moments, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a, so when you think, when you talking about dominance, you know, in the book I'm talking about, um, you know, Hitler and I'm talking about incel spree killers and terrorists. But of course we all, we're so status obsessed. We all use every route to status we can, and all of us use dominance. Hopefully, not in a deadly way like those people. But 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 we all have these little acts of dominance. You know, most days actually, if we feel someone has disrespected us, even in a small way, we we can oh, we can push back in a in an aggressive way. I mean, that's what road rage is. That's what we're doing when we're tutting and sighing because someone's taking too long at the queue in. Sainsbury's or whatever it is. So it's really easy to kind of slip into those little, you know, dominance kind of modes. And, and what I found interesting in the literature was that actually we almost become a different version of ourselves when we, when we, when we go into dominance. We, we're mm. using different parts of our brain, our body language changes, our tone of voice changes. And it's almost like we're kind of slipping back into this kind of more animalistic kind of milli, two million year old version of ourselves. And as you say, it's really actually really bad for us because you, you might feel kind of righteous and justified in the moment. But you won't two hours later. You'll feel like an idiot. And, and it's something I've noticed in myself. I'm not, like, I'm, like a lot of people, I'm bad in the mornings. I'm particularly grumpy. Like, I get more grumpy in the mornings. And there have been times when I've, you know, I've been like, something's happened. I'm going to go, right, I'm going to, I'm not putting up with this. I'm going to send an email. Um, <laughs> and, and then, and as I'm writing the email, I'm thinking, you're going to regret writing this email. But then I think, no, I'm not, because it's not fair. Like, I'm totally justified. And literally 100% of the time, by lunchtime, I'm like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> like, I've got to apologise for that email now. I don't, I don't actually do that quite so much anymore, because I've learned by watching myself. So, yeah, like, it's actually kind of, a, I think, a really wise thing to be, to be on the lookout for. Not only these small acts of dominance, which we can do, but the, but the fact that when we're feeling dominant, mm. we, we're literally inhabiting a different version of ourselves. Mm. So we'll tell ourselves a story that we're, that we're justified. We'll tell ourselves a story that, yeah, you're being a bit of a prick, mm. but they deserve it. Uh, and actually, don't believe the story. Mm. No matter how convincing you're being to yourself, chances are later on when you're feeling less annoyed, when that second self, the dominant self was retreated and you're back to normal again, you're going to really regret it. And it's bad for your reputation. It's actually mm. bad for your status to do that. People don't want to be around dominant people. They want to be around people who deal in virtue and competence. I know that you got the idea for kind of the status game when you were almost on your last book. Mm. Through this exploration, has what has kind of fascinated you most? And is there any rabbit holes that you find yourself wanting to go down? Yeah, so the next book, the book that I'm sort of going to be working on next is um, I'm trying, going to try and sort of tie it all together and write something, you know, like a very critical of self-help books, especially in my book Selfie. I want to write a self-help book that I think is worthwhile, mm. but based on this idea that life is a story and the self is a story and actually what's going on under the hood is all this other stuff about connection and status and how the fact that the brain is this storyteller can really trip us up 
and, and how to avoid some of those sort of pitfalls and actually how to, you know, live a, a life of sort of greater happiness and meaning by learning to tell a smarter story about who we are. That's the general idea. And just to touch upon, you know, the genetic point, mm. because, you know, you write that actually often our status is linked to something that is so out of our control, being mm. our DNA that has also then influenced our personality. What is that relationship? And do you think personality then is something that was kind of predetermined? Or do you think you develop your personality? Well, personality is semi-predetermined. So what psychologists and geneticists say is that very roughly, about 50% of our personality is genetic. So we're born with these kind of 50% finished brains. So we're born with this kind of propensity towards being neurotic or not, extrovert or not. This is the point that know, got me. I was yeah, like, Jesus, openness or neurotic, not. I, yeah. I can blame my parents now. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. And so what happens then is, is you've already set in these certain directions because of the way your brain is kind of wired, it's sort of been wired up in the womb. But then you've got pretty much the first 20 years of your life to do the, that does the rest of that building. And so that, that the rest of that building is done partly by how your parents raise you. But that's kind of a trap because you've got your genes from them, them anyway. Mm. So if you've got genes that to predispose you to neuroticism or introversion, you've probably got neurotic and introverted parents. So they're <laughs> going to treat you in a way that encourages that neuroticism <laughs> and introversion. So, so it's kind of a trap, you know. Um, but, but also, you know, there's, there's lots of space for random events mm. can happen to us, which change us. Mm. Um, there's lots of sort of noise in there. But what we do know is that by your mid-20s, you're, you're pretty much who you are mm. uh, personality-wise. You, you do change predictably in predictable ways as you grow up. They say that personality is like a plate, it can be smashed, so you can experience great trauma, you can go to war or be assaulted very badly and, and obviously, you know, fall to pieces. So that's kind of how that works, is that it's not wholly genetic, but we don't really have very much control over it because mostly the rest of it is happens in our childhood mm. and is about chance and kind of randomness. I think it's about, you know, finding kind of happiness and peace is about finding that little corner of the world that we fit into mm. and accepting it might be that you wish you could be Beyonce, but you might have to accept that you, you can't do that and that you're going to have to find this other thing. But I, but I think most of the time we do find those things is because we're drawn to the things that we're good at, aren't we? Mm. You, you know, like if you're no good at dancing, you're probably not going to want to be Beyonce, you know, like that's what I, th I kind of tend to think. I think I heard you say in another interview, actually, how useful it was to identify strengths. Mm. So if someone had said to you even younger, you're just brilliant at writing. That could have had a real difference yeah. in your life. And I thought, actually, what a lovely, actually super tangible tool, really. It's just to kind of have a bit more honesty over strengths. That's right. And I think that's a sort of valuable thing for parents, really. It's a, I think parents can often get preoccupied with, I want my kid to go to this university, I want my kid to do, be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is. Which kind of translates to, I want them to be rich. Mm. And it comes from a good place because I think what they're also saying is I want them to be comfortable and mm. not have to worry. But, but actually, happiness doesn't come from rich. Happiness comes from status. Happiness comes from finding that thing to do that you can surround yourself with people who think that you're valuable and think you're good at stuff. And so it's about working out what your kid likes doing and work, working out what your kid is quite good at. And just encouraging the hell out of that thing, giving them, giving them all the tools they need to pursue the thing that they're quite good at. And I think mm. that's a much better way of raising a child to be happy and emotionally healthy than trying to get them into Oxford, get them into Cambridge, get mm. them into you know, lawyer school, wherever, mm. <laughs> whatever it is right. you might want to be. If they're a triangle or a triangle, don't try to make them a circle. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I, think that, I think that's right. Thank you so much for your time. This interview has been... I mean, as you can tell, I'm just obsessed with your work. And this book resonated a lot with me because I actually, from reading it, started to realize that I think my kind of mental health fallout when I got really burnt out ended up in hospital. I actually think after reading your book, it was like click, 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 click. I think it was the death of status. Really? Yeah. At the time I was building this company and I had mm. these investors that were trying to take my status away from me. They wanted to take away that I was going to be the founder. Really? They wanted to take away that they said that I couldn't talk about the company in public. And I, when I read your book, I thought, oh my gosh, like so much of the anxiety and this just like mental, like breakdown mm. was because, you know, everything that had meant something to me was being 
taken away or threatened to be taken away. But that's exactly right. And, and I think that's right. And I think so, so, so lots of people when hearing your story from the outside will think, oh, well, she just thought she was going to be a millionaire and it was taken away from her. She was upset because she was going to be rich. <laughs> but that's not that's yeah. not true. They, they tried to take away the, your claim to being the founder yeah. and, they, and they stopped you speaking about it. Now, that's your status. You know, that business was, was had become part of your identity. It was, it was your major claim to status. And they took it away from you. So you're in a situation similar to Ben Gunn, the prisoner, who had it. He, his status was he was, a, he was the lawyer. And when he came out of prison, he didn't have that status anymore. And he fell to pieces. So, you know, I think it really speaks to that, to that idea that, you know, we have this cynical story we tell about people that everyone's just obsessed with money, 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 money. And they're not. Mm. It's about identity. It's mm. about my claim to be of value to people. Mm. And sometimes it looks like money, mm. but it isn't money. That's mm. not what gives people nervous breakdowns unless they've gone bankrupt. But that's also tied right. into status. So, right. yeah, I would completely agree with your analysis. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Well, I will put the link to your book in the show notes. Um, where is the best place for people to follow you and be a part of your world? On Twitter, X. <laughs> um, at, I know. <laughs> I know what's happening. It's awful, isn't it? <laughs> um, it is at W Store, W S T W R. Uh, Instagram, it's William Store, or just on my website, which is just willstore.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hoppy. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker. A skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.